never stop exploring. That's a model of uh, hike equipment brand North Face. And the reason why I'm saying that is that my guest today is the author of this model. His name is Sam Pond. Um, I met Sam a year and a half ago, and he's definitely someone who impacted my life for the better. Sam is someone who, who built a successful career in marketing. And when, in his 50s, he went through a very difficult time where his body collapsed and things were, he went through a breakdown basically. But the interesting thing is that he says that this was one of the best things that could happen because it was the first impulse to a massive transformation that he went through, realization of how much nice guy there was with him and embarking on a journey of self-discovery and, and just healing towards the better. Sam is basically twice my age and I'm learning from him a lot. And I like spending time with him because of the, because of the playful energy that, he, that he's radiating and because of the honesty and the vulnerability that he's just not afraid to share and not afraid to show. So I really enjoyed this interview and you guys have fun. Can you share your story? How, how did you become who you are today and what were the most important milestones? <laughs> I try to talk about that. I've always get asked about this and I think, how the hell am I going to encapsulate 64 years into a conversation? <laughs> uh, you know, in a nutshell, I, I, uh, I grew up in a, in a, a family that was kind, of, uh, it was kind of messed up. It looked really good on the outside. Uh, which was very much my mother's thing, is they look, make sure we all look like stand, upstanding members of uh, society. But it was, the house was, was tense. Dad was a university professor and very, you know, passive, very loving, but very mm, passive. And mom was uh, raging and had a narcissistic side and uh, was uh, pretty abusive. So I learned from a very early age, if I was really nice, and made everybody feel better around me, especially as the middle child and the son, that that's how I, that's who I thought I, I was. So I became kind of the clown and the diplomat and the go-between. My parents would actually ask me as we grew up, rather than talking to my sisters who were struggling, they would talk to, talk to me about them. It was all messed up. It was really the perfect, it was a perfect uh, recipe for being a really uh, nice, nice guy and it kind of worked but uh, as I look back on my life I wasn't really feeling that much I was really driven by my head uh, I was clever and I did clever things with my life but, but um, boy I wasn't really connected to the, my depths at all but I'd functioned that way for you know well over 50 years so you can live a successful life with your head and your heart disconnected then uh, ten about ten years ago, I had uh, I had a son. He was uh, you know thirteen. I had a marriage which was, you know, we were like two frogs. You know, if you take a frog and you put him in boiling water, he'll just jump out. But if you put a frog in cold water and turn it up, he'll just you know die. And that was our marriage. We didn't know any better. She was a version of my mother, and I was a version of her father, and we just 
I was just running away. I was just running away from the tension constantly until one day my body just said, all right, it's enough. And my body totally had a big fat, had a big fat meltdown, kind of like a, uh, a nervous breakdown. But a friend of mine who's a Buddhist said that I didn't actually have a nervous breakdown. I had a shoku boku, which is right. a, a spiritual kick to the head from which your life will be changed forever. I see. And everything shut down. My body shut down. I couldn't see. I had to, I was in panic. Uh, it's a whole, whole other podcast, but the details of it are intense. I ended up in a rehab center in the middle of New Mexico uh, where they introduced me to the idea of childhood trauma that I had suffered, but I'd never allowed myself to suffer because I was the one who was keeping everything together. Did you say you couldn't see, like you lost your sight completely? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I ended up in an airport hotel after frantic phone calls and things were so bad with my wife, I couldn't go to her. I felt like I couldn't go to her. Everything was messed up. So uh, it's a whole story. I see. But it's a great blessing. It's one of the great blessings of my life because I came out of there completely uh, like scrubbed clean. And it was like, okay, restart of my entire life. I see. Could you... When it was happening, what, what were you thinking? Like, what, what do you think is going on? Because, like, I, I guess you don't have many life experiences like this, right? What did I think was going on? I had no idea. Uh, it, uh, you know, the, the pain in my body had been increasing over a few months. So I'd been to the hospital and the doctor, and they said, nothing's wrong with you. And then, uh, hold on a second. Did I lose you? Did no, no, I'm here. Okay. So something happened, uh, and that I was uh, really, um, yeah, I, my things started getting really um, uh, uh, disconnected, and I couldn't, I really couldn't see, and I, my body ached. It was really, really intense, and the, and um, until the high point of it was, or the low point was, I'm sitting, I'm getting so confused. My body is so much pain. I was so mentally confused that um, I remember sitting on my front steps of my house and looking down and I had a hallucination that my front steps had turned into the swirling vortex of hell. And it was like there was all of my shames swirling around underneath me. All the mistakes, all the, all the self-abusive voices, which I you know, kept at bay, all my emotions. I thought, oh, I don't have any idea what's going on. But when I got to this recovery center and there were people with all kinds of, there were ex-heroin addicts and there was all people and there was a place that where childhood abuse was really, uh, was, it was, it was very holistic in its way of looking at this. And they said that what happens when you're young and you are in, in either an abusive moment or a, 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 or a time in your life, that your head and your heart, which are like linked when you're a child, when this happens, they go pop. And then your heart gets buried and you live by your head. Like you can live a successful life from your head. But I, I had the great fortune of my body saying, no, no, you're not going to live this way anymore. I'm shutting, I'm shutting you down until you l listen. Mm. And then after that, I tried everything. I tried uh, Buddhist studies, somatics, uh, landmark. I'm, I, it was like every month I was trying something new to feel better. And it wasn't until I started 
stepped, like I met Zan and I started stepping into the world of women and I was introduced to my core wound, which was around women. And that was my, that was the key that started to unlock things for me. I see. For those who are listening, uh, Zen is Zen Perion. We, we had an interview several episodes ago. I see. So, um, what changed? What was the what was the thing that? What was the the belief that shifted the most, or the the experience that was that was shaping your next development? Not sure there was anything particular, um, just uh, uh, getting m more and more connected to m my heart was really was the first, uh, was the first path. Um, once I started understanding, because I was such a nice guy that I was really putting women first and, and uh, making sure they were taken care of and I, I was always attracting broken women. That was because I had a hero complex from my childhood. I was going to be a hero. I was going to be the hero everywhere. And if I could be a hero to a woman, then she'll love me. And that led to disastrous relationships in my life. Because broken women just like, oh, him. <laughs> yeah. Like searching for fixers. Searching for fixers. And I was happy uh, to fix. Mm. I see. What I'm curious about, I, I think... It's interesting that you said that your, that even though there were these experiences your in, in your childhood, it seemed normal, and I think this is when this is like the the slippery the slippery floor of the nice guy syndrome, that if we feel like if if for instance me as a nice guy I feel that we appear okay to the outside, there's nothing really wrong with me like there there like everything is perfect even though I'm stuck in my head i have no connection to my feelings i have nowhere to know from that it's not normal or like like life can be just so much more with if i allow myself to feel more even even the of even of the bad emotions or like the, the, the negative the, the lower ones so can you like how would you define trauma in, in these terms like what was the trauma that, that you went through that, that you think was was shaping your life to the point that you had this breakdown? Um, well, the trauma was, uh, uh, was uh, you know, was really through my mom. And by the way, I love my mom and she's still alive and we have a really good relationship now. But uh, back then, the trauma was, um, was, it was like walking on eggshells inside the house. And so to be, uh, to be constantly aware and to be constantly aware of my mother's moods to adjust to constantly make adjustments around her and it seemed like a very successful way because i was i was good at it i was good at diffusing tension i could make people in my house laugh so uh it was uh i just never learned how to be really clear how to say no how to set boundaries that was one thing i learned in this recovery center, what a boundary was. I must have asked a dozen times, now, wait a minute, let's go over this boundary thing. What are personal boundaries? Because I had no concept of them. Mm -hmm. Concept. Um, then, yeah. Uh, so there's no specific traumatic event, although there are three or four that do stand out uh, where I was really shut down hard in the moment when I most 
vulnerable or proud of something I had accomplished and just got squashed. So don't feel proud. The message from my house constantly was, don't get too full of yourself. I must have heard that a thousand times. Mm. So it created this kind of unhealthy humility. I see. To this day, when I feel pride, my stomach clenches. Mm -hmm. Like a worthiness thing. So. Yeah. It's like using, it's like when someone, someone uses the notion of ego to manipulate you. So that like, no, no, like that's like, if you want something, that means that you're in your ego and you have to adapt to what the other person wants. It's that's kind right. of, it's kind of evil. I mean, they're, they're all doing it in the best intention, but it's, it's really not comfortable. Yeah. I think it was how everybody, it seemed like for everybody, a reasonable way to, to live, live and grow up. And then I realized, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, went to high school and college in the 70s, that there's no place to turn. There's no information about anything. There's no information about sex or self-development. There was est. That's, and that seemed like a joke uh, to us. Est? What is est? Um, that's Werner Erhardt's. That's what landmark training is based on. It was a big um, kind of culty, abusive culty thing with very smart teachings. Um, mm -hmm. Look up Werner Erhardt and uh, okay. I can't remember what EST stands for. But Okay. Yeah. I think what we talk about this, I think it's extremely important to increase awareness around this area because like I, I've been a nice guy the vast majority of my life. And I thought that, like, I was walking on eggshells around people all the time. And I would feel that I'm failing in moments when I'm not adapting enough. And it was extremely draining. Like, I would, I would be out in the social setting. I would be able to tell jokes. But with every joke, it's felt like I'm risking this disapproval if no one laughs. And if no one does laugh, that was like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> It's like, I, I could also hear this, I could also have these clenches in my stomach. Or another, like another example was when I was playing guitar and there was a group of like 15 people and everyone was singing and I was kind of like leading the group. And then when I stopped and I put the guitar in the, in the guitar case, I would get a stomach cramp because of the massive contrast between the, the amount of validation I have received and then nothing. It was crazy, and I, I thought I, I thought I'm the weirdest person I know, like <laughs> the weirdest person that exists because of this. And I now make perfect sense. It sounds similar to me because I, I had a I always lived with an intense self consciousness, like what am I doing? Are people receiving? Did I make a mistake? But I was able to mask it with kind of an affability and a, and a, you can't touch me you know, everything's fine, but it was, I could not smoke pot. Everybody around me was smoking pot. To this day, if I have a hit of pot, I just suddenly all of my focus goes on me, all of my flaws. <laughs> but when I do it now, it's like, oh, there are the, vo I'm kind of high, but I'm like, there are the voices. There they are. <laughs> so it's different, different relationship. Nice. So, as a, I would say as a recovered nice guy or recovering nice guy, or as, as Dr. Glover puts it, what do you like, what were the, some of the first steps that you have undertaken that helped you the most? 
Well, we'll talk about fearless, but once I, I, st I stepped into the fearless world and really started getting uh, introduced to this flow of feeling that was r running through me, whether it was grief or my anger, um, that's the, that was the first step. I mean, I had no idea how much I had been repressing or suppressing. And along with that comes a sense of self and a sense of anger. Anger has been such a powerful, even though I, I have yet to really find the depths of my, my anger. But once I started feeling it, it was like, wow, this is power. I can say no. So I practiced saying no for a while. And now, now when I say no, even if it's in a gentle way to a, someone who wants to get money from me, when I say no, everything just stops. So powerful. So the path to that was all was just completely through my emotions and finding the power that was in me to be non-reactive to the world and uh, just let things come to me and go, oh, this is my boundary here. Yes, no. That's the core of it, the ability to say no. How did you, how did you deal with the guilt that came up with saying no? Because like, like that, that was my experience, that that was something I had to deal with. So I'm curious if you went through something similar, maybe. I didn't really deal with, I mean, it, the shame is always pervasive. Uh, it always shows itself, uh, it, it always rears its ugly head. I, I never had that much guilt about saying no. I mean, once I really learned how to, how to say no. Mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit popped up, but I, mostly I felt the power of it. I went, oh, this is really interesting. Not much, not much guilt. I see, I see, and so like I, I'm just curious if there is any like if there is something something specific that that, uh, that works because because starting to say no, it's like what Brian says that like it is the most difficult in the beginning, like the rocket the space rocket burns the most fuel during the start. Yep. Once you get once you get going, then it gets it's somewhat easier. I'm just curious how, how to how to start with it because like like from my, in my experience, like fearless also changed my life and changed the way I perceive tension and saying and saying no and really drawing boundaries. And in my case, it was having someone with whom I could talk after I said no multiple times or after I had faced tension that would be otherwise overwhelming, like having a coach or having a friend with whom we go through, through the same thing to somehow ground that it's normal. That it's like, like I'm not evil person because I refuse to do someone else's job. And this kind of like, this is, this is what helped, helped for me. What, what was your experience with, with Shane? You know, I think that it comes down to knowing what you want. I've had so many calls, uh, uh, you know, with clients. And really the first question is like, what do you, what do you want? What do you want out of life? And probably 70%, they waffle. They, they say, I want to be free. Yeah, but what do you want? What do you, of course, we all want to be free. What do you want? And a lot of men can't say, even say that they want to have a gangbang or, or a girlfriend or just say something. Mm -hmm. So to, because there's so much shame around wanting something. And then there's the fear and the grief of not being worthy of wanting something I see so it really takes a while what do you want say anything say what you want in this world because 
like with me, if I went to a restaurant and I ordered a tuna salad sandwich and they accidentally gives me a chicken salad sandwich, I would say, oh, well, I like chicken salad too. Okay, I'll eat that. Yeah, but I didn't fucking order a chicken salad sandwich, I ordered tuna. Mm. So to, and nice guys do this constantly with, with everything. So you can start to experiment in the tiniest ways. If someone gives you incorrect change, count the change and say, you owe me a penny. Yeah. Small, small things. That starts to empower you. Then the big stuff becomes easier and easier. What do you want? Yeah. I remember this exercise. I, I don't remember who recommended it to me, but it was doing these things on purpose even in situations where they weren't factual so i would like i would get change from from having a coffee and i would say that like there's not the right amount of change just to expose myself to this the situation and they would tell me no no it's the right amount of change but i made them recount it and then i <laughs> then i received them again and i felt guilty as fuck it, it, it was a nightmare during the first five times yeah, and then it, when it got comfortable, I started to to do the changes in other social settings or at, at, at work. Yeah. Um, so now, now you're a coach for men. You're also coaching uh, with and coaching with fearless. Yeah. What was your What was your previous career? What What did you do before? Before that. Well, my previous careers were a extension of my childhood. I was a uh, an an actor, a Shakespearean actor, all the way through my like teens through my all the way through my 20s I was in New York and, and rep theaters around the country and it was fairly successful but you know as I look back on it it was just a big fat way of getting validation from the outside world and anybody who's an actor has some broken part that the applause and the adulation feels like love so it was a way of looking for love I mean, it wasn't a, certainly a waste of time but it, because I was kind of good at it. Um, and then that led me to a career as a writer. And then I got, was in advertising for 30 years as a writer and a, and a creative director. Again, using these childhood coping skills, these uh, survival skills of entertaining people. Mm -hmm. And about... It was about three years ago, I was in the middle of a big project and I'd been independent for a long time uh, and uh, as a writer, producer, and um, <laughs> it, uh, the, one day I was in the middle of a big project and, the, and I stopped myself and asked myself, why am I still doing this? I've been doing this a long time, why am I doing this? And I, the answer in my head was, your reputation. You got a really good reputation. You got to keep up your reputation. And in that moment, I realized, oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm only in this for my ego. <laughs> it just hit me like, and from that moment, it was like everything just dropped out of my hands like a bag of wet cement, and the phone didn't ring again. It's rung twice in the last three years. Like wow. the universe heard. Mm -hmm. And then that set me like, oh, no, what do I, then if I'm not, a writer and a director and an actor, what am, what am I? So mm. had to come up with an answer. I, read, I wrote screenplays for a while and I did all that. And it wasn't like, I just didn't want to do, I didn't care. I didn't care about being famous anymore. 
so it's kind of a lost time. And then, do you know Erica Angelo? No, but I've heard about her from your work. Yeah, she's really great. And I did some coaching with her. Uh, she coached me. She was on me, on me about being a coach. I said, what are you talking about? Why? I have nothing, nothing to teach. And she would say, say, you have no idea who you are. You have no fucking clue. And I said, Erica, I'm too, I think I said, I think I'm too selfish and lazy to teach other men, coach other men on my own personal journey. She just laughed at me. And mm. Then I started. And then I got like, oh, this feels aligned. So now my life is like, I just spend all my time thinking about other guys, what I can teach and uh, who, who can I coach? It just feels more flowy now. For the first time, everything was an effort before. This feels like kind of like effortless. Yeah. You sound pretty humble about the, the marketing career, but from what I know, you, you had some pretty big accomplishments. Like even, even though you, like dropped all that through the nice guy and, and through the patterns you had some really big big successes right yeah yeah i did um Can it's you fun to look back on advertising successes oh yeah i won dozens of international awards i won uh, clio's and uh, Cannes lions and i mean all kinds of things do you know the north face that's my one claim to my big claim to fame yeah the north face uh Trading company yeah, uh, yeah, outdoor equipment, and uh, and uh, it was a count of mine when I had my own agency, and uh, <laughs> their slogan, which is on everything, is uh, I wrote called "Never Stop Exploring," and I oh, wrote really? that. Yeah, and wow. uh, yeah, it was really funny. It's a long story, but uh, even Brian, a couple of weeks ago, we were in L.A., and he, we see a bunch of teenagers, teenage guys hanging around. One had a Never Stop Exploring sweatshirt, and Brian said, I dare you <laughs> go up and ask him if you want him to sign his sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was, I said, you know that thing on your back? He said, no, it says, never, I, you know, I wrote that. And the, and the teenagers were like, whoa, dude. <laughs> I said, yeah, you want me to sign your t-shirt, your sweatshirt? And they go, yeah, man. <laughs> Funny, I never tell anybody that. It seems so, yeah, you're right. There's kind of a humility. There's kind of, there's a little, not shame around being in advertising, but in the end, I realized I wasn't a consumer and I didn't really care about the validation or uh, shaming uh, people into buying things that they don't really need to be happy. Mm -hmm. And that was the big thing. I just wasn't aligned with it anymore. So, I see. I wanted to. I wanted people to know this, like the also the accomplishment part of, of your marketing career, because it sounds like like from the outside, if you just read the book, the nice guy. Maybe not the book, but if you just hear someone talking about it, it sounds like like it's impossible to achieve anything like within the with the nice guy syndrome. But the truth actually is the opposite. You can go very high. You can get like almost the top management or maybe even the top management, but it's going to be extremely draining and effortful and painful and tiring. And the, the very top is unreachable, I believe, because of the inability to, to take risks and just to like suit oneself after all that effortful day. 
right? Like, what, what really true. yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, just a lot of tension. There's a lot of proving myself. There wasn't a lot of flow to it um, until I went independent. And then Brian asked me one day, he said, well, just think how successful you would have been if, if you'd known now what you knew then. I said, Brian, I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have been in advertising. I wouldn't have needed it. I wouldn't have needed it. Who knows where I would have done. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Looking back, it's kind of funny. So, Have you ever think about this from some perspective of, of regret? Like what life could have been if you had known some things some time ago? I get asked that a lot about regret. And maybe I don't know myself yet well enough. <laughs> I don't feel much regret. I really don't. I, I look back at my life and I really have met peace with, I was doing the best with what I knew and I did what I could. I, I didn't have the knowledge of the skills or the awareness to be anything else. I think I did pretty well given all of my, given all of my uh, uh, lack of uh, misunder- my misunderstandings about myself and about life. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was that a little pride there? Yeah, a little bit of pride. <laughs> Fuck humility. <laughs> yeah, that's the way. Yeah. You but it was all like, well, I'll say that it was all charm-based. I mean, that was one of the things that was keeping me from really diving into myself because I did have a natural, I called it charm. I mean, I could charm people into doing things. I could tease people into doing things. I could sell an, adver- an insane advertising idea to a client because I could manipulate them to buy ideas which they were not comfortable buying. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was a little, it was a skill I grew up, I knew how to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. Not, not for, for evil intentions, but I uh, uh, had all these tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, because if it's like, the, if it's the only thing you know, how can you not use it, right? Absolutely. So anybody who has regrets in, in life, uh, yeah, I get it. I understand. But that's coming from a lot of unresolved grief mm. and a lot of unresolved anger. Once you start to let those go, then you just realize, God. You know, I was talking, one of my big realizations, having been married for 15 years and a tough divorce, that um, people are always saying, well, you got to forgive. got to forgive yourself. you got to forgive her. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what that feels like. What I just say, I forgive you. And, and then I had a big realization that why do I need to forgive her if I don't blame her or blame myself? What's there to forgive? We were both doing what we could. And then it hit me like forgiveness is really arrogant. I'm up here. I'm forgiving you down there. Because you uh, did wrong and I am better than you. So the whole notion of forgiveness to me is I, I don't even talk about it anymore. I just talk about I see. Blame. I see. So there must have been hurt made so that forgiveness can be made. And if there's like if 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 it's just not there, like there's nothing to forgive. Exactly. Yeah. That's how I like to see it. And then forgiveness is just a feeling rather than a an act. I don't even think about forgiving anybody. I just don't blame them anymore. Hmm. I'm asking about regrets because I think it's a, it's a 
fairly universal topic on all age, like in, 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 any, in any age groups. Thinking about my own life, I also had regrets and I'm like basically half your age. And I'm, I was having this, I was like, well, what life would be like if I were studying at the university abroad instead of the one which is in my country. And so, but it doesn't really like, like the way I see it is that it, it all, like the only important thing that matters is now. And if I can, if I can, that, that's, that's what helps me. If I can get to the place that from now I can create what, how it's going to look like in the future, then it doesn't really matter what it was like before. Cause like in any age, the only thing I'll have is now. That's really true. And in the path to really feeling that can't be in understanding it in your head, even talk using words to talk about releasing blame on yourself or on the world or on other people is it's more of a, of a, of a feeling. I mean, you can, you can dive into your own blaming of yourself or blaming other people. Once you really feel that they were doing what they could, I was doing what I could. It's so simple. How could you do something that you didn't know? We are innocent. That's the thing. We're all innocent. At our core, we are tender, innocent beings that were um, doing the best that we could with what we know. Mm. It feels like a lot of acceptance, the way you talk about that. I think it's a lot of love. Yeah, I see love as, as the all-expansive, enveloping thing. So mm -hmm. developing love for yourself is for me the primary path i end up talking about that all the time so yeah that was actually exactly what i wanted to go wanted to go to this the next topic so i'm glad you started it you you mentioned this i i saw you mentioning this with erica angelo or like the lady you were talking about mm -hmm. and i heard you talking about that in in the in the workshop the last time so how do you how do you perceive this this topic of, of self-love how how what changed in your life in this area you know it, it's the love was um in my in growing up while there was not a lack of love it was a tied to tied to things it was um but there was and there wasn't an abundance there was no sense of abundance and I remember going, it was at a landmark event, uh, and the, the guy said, the first thing he said was, I love you all, and you probably think that's bullshit. I remember thinking, how can you love someone you don't know? How can you, that's bullshit. But it started to hit me that, that and I remember it was about a year and a half or two years ago, I was just assisting in a fearless workshop, and Brian was, doing a little talking and then he said yeah then there's Sam he's he always shows up to assist and you know help coach and on his own dime and then he said to the group he said and you know why he keeps showing up and I'm like I'm standing in the back going I wonder what he's going to say why do I keep showing up <laughs> and he said because he loves you guys and I really felt that and I went that's exactly it uh, and so a lot of it's unexpected is like this unexplainable part 
I had a big realization a year ago that, because I was really um, meditating on what love was, I didn't understand, I just didn't understand it, uh, or what it felt like, uh, because I'd been chasing it all of my life. And I had this little syllogism in my head pop in. I said, well, love is abundant. Everybody says love is abundant. Okay, I believe that. I see proof of that all over. And the universe is abundant and an expanding, and time-space is expanding into infinity, expansion. And I realized, oh, love is the expansive energy of the universe. This is the proof. I don't, for me, that was the understanding. And so now it's the, it's the formula is right down to love is expansion. Anything that's contracting is waiting to be, waiting to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> so we can feel love for all sorts of things, but somehow we're always the last in line, but we all have the ability to, to, to love something. You can feel it. You can, you can, when you drop in. And even if it's just a sliver, if you start nursing that little sliver, it starts to expand and expand. Um, I'm naturally kind of heart oriented, so it, the path was a little quicker for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I had to go through all the shit. I had to go through my grief and my anger and my lust and, uh, and all of that in order. Because this is the way I see it, is that you know, you have the, the very, the heaviest vibration is apathy, right? I can't, hopelessness. And apathy is all the emotions, the lower emotions, stuffed into a gluey ball, right? And so you're, yeah. it's like stuck and dense and contracting. Then you have peace, love, acceptance, all the way, and those are higher vibration. But that, that's also made of grief, fear, anger, lust everything all the way up to it. So mm -hmm. they're made of the same thing, except one is contracting and one is expanding. So to get out of apathy, can you invite expansion into apathy? It's like white light is made of every color. Yeah. But vibration is loose and expanding, expanding, expanding. And black is all the colors contracting, contracting, contracting. So you choose expansion at every what feels expansive then you're tapping into love at every corner it's a really simple formula mm -hmm. so is that even like when you feel some of those like heavy emotions you always see that through this lens of, of expansion and you expand into it even though it's even though it's painful yeah we talk about you know releasing practice releasing i stopped calling it releasing i just call it loving I just see it. anything that has pain is like a, is like a wounded child and child in pain. And I used to take that child and stuff him into a dark closet and say, well, good luck to you over there. You know, come out when you're ready, <laughs> which I guess was sort of how I grew up. You know, that was, that was, that was how I grew up. Mm. And now when I sit with a heavy feeling, it's like I can feel my own, um, my own version of my pa of parental presence with it. Mm -hmm. So feminine is what nurtures it and says, it's okay, you're safe, you're safe. And the, and the masculine is that presence. I'm here, not going anywhere. 
I feel emotional saying that, that 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 feeling you are safe i'm here and when you're ready to go head outside explore let's go and it's that combination of energies which is so powerful the masculine doesn't say okay are you done are you done crying come on let's go but uh, the masculine says let's go the masculine has to say at some point say okay that's enough let's go mm. and then the feminine says no 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 he doesn't want to go <laughs> he's still crying it's it's really beautiful if we can if if you can if you come to the point that you can give yourself this parental love that you lacked in the past and that, that you can it's kind of like you can be your own parent it, it's actually your words I love the expression. Yeah. Yeah. I um, spontaneously I took a a, a a client a year ago into a journey to find his wounded younger self. I don't know how it happened. We just started exploring this forest together, and he's telling me what he sees, and he sees a boy huddled, you know, in a in a cave, and. He actually went and rescued him, rescued him himself. It was really powerful. Carried the boy out, and uh, and uh, it was he. So he was in his feeling imagination was rescuing himself through this visual journey that we were going on. Yeah. When you have a when you have a client and you or you're working with with a guy and you see he's a nice guy and he really wants to work on himself, but he's pushing and pushing and pushing from the head. And you really want to cultivate this feeling of self-love. How, what would be the first thing that, that you would advise or how do you go around to this challenge? You know, uh, coaching really shifted to me for, for me a few years ago when I um, stopped coming in with a plan or an idea or an advice or teaching and I just showed up with nothing. I remember thinking, what if I showed up with nothing? And it got really powerful really fast because it just dropped me into the sort of loving observance of what was going on. The first then from then is just keep inviting them to feel what's beneath that, what's beneath that. And their heads are so busy and they're explaining and they have stories and then, oh yeah, that's a story, isn't it? And then a story. So it's just, Coaching to me is listening with love and understanding, primarily. Because if you start, if you tell him, hey, look, you're in your head. What's he gonna do? Where's that information gonna go? We have to, we have to create this fertile soil of, of emotional presence before that seed of, of wisdom or guidance or advice can like, take root. Otherwise, you're trying to plant a seed in cement. Say, hey, you're in your head. Why don't you stop being in your head? You know how in your head you are? And then the seed just bounces off the pavement. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got no place to go to. So they have to feel their grief and they have to feel their, their fear first. And it's not pleasant, but then they stop talking. And then there's silence. And this is where inner wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from thinking. It comes from someplace else it appears 
That's all right. Yeah, but like, when you guide a guy into into feeling, then then you can just say, "I'd like on a call, or if I'm working with a client, if I if I don't do that, forty five minutes of listening and questioning and asking and dropping and dropping and dropping, any advice for him is not going to have is going to be meaningless." But when that soil is really fertile, and I just say, and if I say one thing, you can feel it on the call. It just goes, and the guy goes, ah, oh. huh. Yeah. That's always the sweet spot when a guy just goes, huh. <laughs> As opposed to, I get it. Oh, I totally understand. God, if I just did this and my past and this and this, it's like, oh, he's not getting where it's like, it's like bouncing around the side of his head. Big bumping in a way. Yeah. The real shifts come from an inner wisdom that there, that is, goes beyond words. That's beautiful. It, it's a beautiful way to put it. Cause, and then if, if, then if it's not like a hyped and it, it's linked to some, some of the higher emotions, then it sticks. Like even if he thinks about it or writes it down or whatever, it just sticks. Yeah, and it expands inside of them. Mm. The last thing you want to do is give a guy advice. And that's what they want, right? Hey, so what do I say to a girl? What happens if this happens in the bedroom? And you can tell them and they'll, it'll just go ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding. But it won't shift their entire perspective and their view of what reality is. Mm. <laughs> I see. So I wonder how, how, how are you doing these days? Like what's, what's, how would you evaluate your, your, your life right now? Like your, your current activities, being a coach, we like you're making a major shift if you compare it with, with 10 years. I mean, I mean, I'm interested in the perspective of, be, of basically being a, I know you talked about that, but like being a successful person to the outside in marketing, and now doing like really deep internal work with guys on seeing the world differently, on doing like the, the feeling-based work with men. How does it feel like? What's, how is it different? As I, I mentioned earlier, is that it feels like I have alignment in my life where things aren't um, hard anymore. Um, my life in general over the last few years uh, Brian was interviewing me and I found myself saying, you know, that was my 63rd year. That was the best year of my life. And I said that with no resistance. It's absolutely true. Not that my outside world has changed a whole lot. I mean, I do see, you know, women who I'm very fond of and beautiful and sex is getting great. And, uh, uh, but my day-to-day -day life is just more, it just has more peace to it. Um, it's hard to say, it's, it's hard to, hard to, hard to speak, but like if I have, like yesterday I had five coaching calls, I had five of them. I thought, oh God, damn, that's going to be a long day. How am I going to do that? Where am I going to get the energy for that? The fifth one happened five hours later and I went, wow, that was, is there another one? <laughs> just feels more, everything feels more flowy. Um, am I, I still am really personally interested. I'm really happy with this uh, decision to join Fearless, really. 
fact, I had coaches uh, who, you know, were in the life coaching, seduction coaching, you know, world outside of therapy. And they all said, why would you take that job? You got your own coaching business. Why would you take it? Why would you give your gifts to somebody else? And uh, I remember thinking, yeah, that's true. I, I understand that. But the reason I'm going to do it is because it feels right. Didn't make a lot of rational sense. And, but in doing that, I have stepped into more and more tension, the possibility of moving down to LA, more travel, working in a larger group, working with concepts that aren't my concepts, but I'm making them my, I'm finding now through my lens, the concepts of, or the, the principles of fearless filtered through me are, are me. So I really like that feeling. So it's, yeah, so there's a lot of my own self-expression in it, which I didn't see coming. I thought, oh, I'm a fearless robot with fearless principles, but that's not how it works over there. So it was all, it was all in my head. Um, I'm really happy for you, Sam. Like I, um, it's really, it's, it's really inspiring to see how you can make such a dramatic change and be, how to make such a dramatic change in basically in how many years? When when was this? When when did this thing with, with breakdown happen? Ten years. Yeah, I stopped drinking and uh, restarted my life. And you know, the first three or four years were basically unraveling, uh, you know, from a divorce and and taking care of my son. And then it wasn't really the really deep, but all that was deep personal work, too. But it has yes, in the last couple of years, it's really. You know, it's like that compounding interest. Like, Jesus, how much longer is this self-development going to take? And then all of a sudden, I've swept up in the last two years. But now I'm here. And now I'm going to explore the next mm. compound interest until I become Jesus. <laughs> okay. Will you then walk on the water as well? <laughs> I'm going to walk on the water. Yeah. What's I remember the, thinking over those 10 years how much I was desperately looking to feel better and I, how much I was searching for things in spirituality. I studied all sorts of spiritual practices and beliefs and they weren't really going deep because I was really looking to just feel better. And now that I'm more embodied in my life, I'm just, uh, there's more flow. I feel more grounded. Now my spiritual curiosity has really blossomed to something that I'm not looking to heal myself mm -hmm. not seeking anything and now things are beginning at that side of my life it's getting really it's really weird walking down the street sometime thinking is this real is this maybe this isn't real <laughs> i remember what, what, what was the exercise you were talking about like it's what was it was it the radical loving or like extreme loving yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, the radical love experiment. Did you ever try it? I thought about it a few times, but I was always in my house. So I never, I never did it outside. Oh, you got to do it in your house. Yeah, the idea is to walk around the world, your house outside, and love everything. But not just like, I love you. Like, no, oh, I love you. No, it's insane, unreasonable, Jim Carrey, batshit crazy, uh, maniacal love for everything that come, arises in your consciousness. And you, if you do that for 20 or 30 minutes, just walk down the street and just, and you feel the embarrassment. 
you feel is the shame. You feel everything. And you can just love that too. And you just walk around <laughs> loving everything. And then finally I knew I'd lost my mind when, when I tripped on a crack on the sidewalk. And you know when you trip on a crack on the sidewalk, you usually look at the crack and go, ah. Like if people are watching, it's like, it wasn't me, it was a crack on the sidewalk. I turn to the crack on the sidewalk and I turn down and I go, oh, crack. I love you. I just, you woke me up. Maybe I wasn't paying any attention. And, and you're just a crack. And, and you used to be a sidewalk, now you're a crack. And I've realized, oh shit, I've lost my mind. <laughs> Life is so much more interesting when you walk around on the verge wondering, am I crazy? Maybe this is insane to wonder if all this is real. Well, I'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like there are so many of exercises like this. I was doing one with, I'm not sure what I found it. I think maybe it was Zen's book where he says, just go around the, the city, look at people and think what makes you feel curious about them. Yeah. And what would you compliment about them? And I was walking in Prague for about 40 minutes. And after 40 minutes, I was almost crying because I just felt amazing. I felt, I, I, I really felt inspired. And I was like, at, at that moment, I realized that the people are not the way they are, but they are the way I see them. And I can totally change the way I see them just by, by the, the focus and the intent I make when I look at them. And this was just 40 minutes. No one talked to me. I didn't talk to anyone. And <laughs> it was life changing. I totally get it. You're challenging your lens of the world or you're inviting a new lens. Uh, people all the time will walk around and say, God, you're so lucky, lucky to live in San Francisco. Got so many beautiful women there. And they're, it's, and they're from London. Go, what are you talking about? There's beautiful women all over. <laughs> what are you talking about? But his, like, I, I was having a lunch with uh, a bunch of life coaches in London. This is a London story about two years ago. And we were at a work at a big uh, conference. And we were all talking about girls around the table. Because, you know, if you're in the seduction dating world, you always want to talk about girls rather than business. So we're talking about girls. And the guy from London said, God, you know, you guys are so lucky to live in Barcelona and Madrid and San Francisco, women there are beautiful. In London, the women are, I think he said, self-entitled uh, bitches. <laughs> and they're not that good looking. And we were like, Alfredo and I have been walking around for two days talking to women, like all oh, these beautiful, open-hearted women from London. And so I challenged him on his, I said, look, we're coaches. Can I challenge your perspective? So I talked to him and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe my lens is off. And he said, but Sam, you have to understand that women in England are self-entitled bitches and they're not that good looking. And he like, he couldn't even see his lens. So what you were doing was inviting yourself through your lens and to see your world through beauty. We have that choice every moment of our lives. True. Little slivers, little slivers. The gratitude I have, the love I have for things around me appreciation for things and it doesn't have to be overwhelming it doesn't have to be the world's greatest sunset just like you the old lady in that hat gosh she wears that hat it's good yeah sammy running out of time before we wrap up um i wanted to ask you what are your plans for the near future where this is like a 
like a job interview question. Where do you see yourself in three years? <laughs> well, this is this wow. I'm just curious what you what you're up to for for the for the for what's coming up for you. Um, okay, in my um, my uh, professional coaching life, I love where it's going. I want to keep uh, expanding. I like being more courageous in what I'm doing. Like really saying what I like. I was just telling. I started my little YouTube channel, and even saying little, I've just diminished it. I'm making an effort to make a video every day so I can get comfortable and speak without scripting things in my head. Um, so I want to keep expanding and getting just getting bigger and, and bolder and challenge all those little voices that are just saying, oh, you're not, you're not Zan Perion or you're not Brian, but I'm beginning to see that I have something so unique to offer and I want, and I'm just getting a hint of what that is. And I want to step into the tension of really growing into that. That to me is really exciting and scary. And I don't know what that means in some ways. Um, I really am curious about finding one last great love in my life. And uh, I'm curious why she hasn't shown up. And I feel the little voices in me saying, well, you're not ready. Or, she, or you're, not, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this. But um, I am being very successful in the women that I do see. That was a big shift for me is once I realized that I had a little, okay, I'm not in love with her. But sex is great, and we have a great time, and I have this little shield around me. I thought, what if I just let that, and the shield was protecting me and her from it going too far, or... And then one day I said, well, why don't I just love any woman I see, just fall in love with them. Just fall in love with them in front of me, and changed everything. Mm. So, I'm interested in... in I don't know how if I have to find this woman or if she's just going to show up, but I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling I'm kind of surrendered and peaceful about it right now. Sam, thank you so much for, for sharing and for being really vulnerable about the way you talked about the your life and topics and what, what's, what's going on in your life right now and in the past. I really appreciate that. And where can people or where can guys follow you if they want to reach out to you or they want to find your YouTube YouTube channel? You can if you um, if uh, you do the at symbol Sam Pond Coaching, you can pretty fi much find anything that I'm doing. But my website is uh, sampond.com. Okay. And otherwise, there's bits and pieces of me all over the place. So if anybody wants to talk, they can reach out to me at, um, at sam at sampond.com and I'd be happy to chat, find out what's going on. Perfect.